The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Gary talks Qatar tyre troubles and Andretti ambitions and answers your questions about non-performance parts, development strategy and one-car teams. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm your host, Ed Straw, but the person you're really here to listen to is the legend that is Gary Anderson, now into his second half century in F1. So welcome back, Gary. How was the Qatar Grand Prix for you? Well, um, I, may, I think you'd say it was different. Um, obviously, a few googlies thrown in there for the teams to handle, which is always good to see how t- people react to situations. But uh, it's a situation that you know probably really shouldn't have happened. And I wasn't really over the moon by the way they tried to recover it. Um, you know, it's difficult to know what, what's the best solution. I wasn't there. I was just watching it from the outside. But whenever you get a change after a you know a day's running as such, it, it does throw the... Uh, you know, through the cat among the pigeons, I suppose. It's just one of those sort of situations. The teams that can adapt best always do adapt best. But yeah, um, good race, enjoyed it. Bit confusing because obviously you're just waiting all these pit stops happening and all different times and all different tyres. Uh, but the end result, to be honest, was, you know, was what it should have been. It was it was right. Um, the quickest guys were at the front there and that was that's what made the race. So I think the top four, you could say, were where the top four and um and that was okay yeah very much so and yeah plenty of interesting storylines which in a season where the championship battle has not really been a big discussion point of course max verstappen clinched the title on on saturday in qatar it's it's good that even late in the season there's that sort of thing and i think we probably go straight from this into your choice of topic as we always do we let you have a free choice for the first part and i think what happened in Qatar with the tyres and all the track limit stuff and the, the countermeasures they brought in are well worth delving into. I imagine that will be some aspect of that you'll want to uh, seize upon. Yeah, I mean, uh, the tyres and track limits, I think, you know, they go hand in hand um, in reality. Um, the the problem there was was the depth of the curbs and the, um, you know, the fact that the drivers run onto the curbs. You know, in theory, the cars are two metres wide Um and you're not illegal until the you can see all of the white line on the inside of the car. So basically, you're you're two meters off the black bit whenever you're uh, whenever you get done for track limits, um, which is way too much. Um, and that means that you know the curb at that point in Qatar was was hurting the tires. You know everything has a limit. Everything has a, a maximum working limit. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know if it hadn't been the tires that were coming up with a problem there, you could see cars feeling a suspension. We've heard it on the radio many times. Drivers been told to stay off certain curbs because it's, you know they're detecting sensor damage or they're detecting big spikes and suspension loads. Um, so at the end of the day, you know you, you do have to have a limit somewhere, and I think the the focus personally for me should be on on track limits. It's one of those sort of situations. Now I see that the FIA have been making statements that say that some tracks need to change. Um, or else they're going to lose the race. But that's that's a bit of a silly statement to make because, you know, the, the FIA licenses tracks to run a Formula 1 race. You know, that's a, a higher license than to run any other formula. So they go there, they inspect the track before the Formula 1 cars can go to race there. So they sign it off, and, and that's what they did. No point in blaming tracks like Austria or or um, or Qatar for, for track limit problems because 
that's that's their curb system. That's what they 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 signed off. They agreed to it all. So, at the end of the day, you know, they take responsibility for a lot of things. But this is one thing that they take responsibility for a hundred percent. So, you know, their their track specification should be such that it's acceptable to the teams because that's who drives it, um, and to the the, the suppliers, i.e., Pirelli. Um, to that they're happy enough with this with the the specification of the track for their tires, so it's in the FIA's hands to do something for it. And I, I, you know, I suggest it in an article I've just written about the fact that it can't be that difficult to do an electronic control system that you know tells you when the car goes off the track. Because what we see now is you know somebody will go a bit wide, close to the mark. We see it on TV, but it's still you know minutes later, whenever they, they lose their time. And also the fact that they don't actually police it as well in free practice sessions before qualifying, that confuses me a little bit because that's the, that's the time you get a chance to to sort of um, come to terms with it all if you get it policed during free practice sessions. And again, you know, the, the change in uh, in Quattar, whenever they put in a, a, spe- a special session before the, the sprint race qualifying as such um, to allow the teams to come to terms with the new track layout where they moved the the white line in um just shows that you know they they then bought into the fact that the teams needed to learn or the drivers needed to learn how to stay within those track limits but they don't do that in normal practice so this is sort of chicken and egg thing i think you need to sit down and think about it all and also the fact that you know painting the white line on the ground if you ever sat in one of these racing cars you'd know how hard it is to see that and to see the, the curb you know like monaco you know you see the barrier um, through you know whatever any corner at Monaco, you know the fast corners at Monaco, you see the barrier, you know how close you can get to it. Um, some drivers will clip it, some drivers will give a, a centimeter of a gap, but at the end of the day, you see it. It's up, it's up high, but the, the white line and the curbs, you you don't see. You know you 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 hope you you know where it is. Um, the sun going low, everything's against you whenever you go to some of these eastern countries because they're running at night. The sun's coming down. The, uh, the 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 glint of the track, the glint of the lights, it just you just don't see it with the definition there. So there has to be some electronic means to control it that immediately alarms the driver that you've you've gone off limits. You can then back off immediately, save your tires, you know, recharge your battery, have a go the next lap. That that alarm system can very easily be sent to the teams as well. So if that is done, and you know, talking Mister Stupid here, really, at the minute we have the the start line. Uh, procedure, start line uh, jump system. So you end up with with uh, a system in the car that detects when the car stops and when it um, starts to move on the start line. So something like that can happen as well, um, very easily around the track. I mean, a wire embedded in the track at a certain distance from the curb, and so that, and a sensor on the car center line that if you go across that wire. It, you know, it sets a signal in the car. It's, I, I think it's very easy to do. I'm sure everything's out there to do it. It's just, uh, it needs to be done though because it is becoming the talking point of what racing's about now. And racing should be about racing. So if they did some type of track, uh, track limits system, then the tyre situation would not even have arisen. So it's, um, it's a circle of events and you can fix two problems with one, with one fix really. Yeah, it's certainly a slightly odd situation as well because those curbs that were causing the problem that have this 50 millimetre kind of drop because it obviously the, 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 it goes upwards the further you get to the back of the curb. So you end up dropping off 
like this sort of little little mini five centimeter cliff each time and it was it was hitting that and and the impacts from that that was causing the problem but that was the second row of curbs in Qatar a couple of years ago and now that's the first row of curbs so that caused some problems then so it should have been foreseen although it was slightly different manifestation of the problem but just to roll it back a little bit obviously you've pointed at the track limits etc there there's plenty of criticism of Pirelli as well shouldn't the Pirelli tyres be able to withstand that so does does anything lie with Pirelli on this, of course, who've just been announced as the tyre supplier for up to at least the end of 27 with a one-year option for another uh, for, for 2028. Yeah, the problem will always lie with it, with where the problem is, um, in this case with Pirelli, because they will go away and they'll try to come up with a solution to fixing it. But, I, you know, I, I think everything for me on the car has a limit. Um, everything has to be driven within that limit. And again, you know, these cars, they're not rally cars, they're not... They're not off-road vehicles, you know. The track is, you, you know how much complaints the drivers do whenever they go to a bumpy track. Um, and yet they're happy to drive off the road and go over these ripples or these bumps and the curbs. And if you imagine just driving down the motorway, you know, and you go on that little white line at the edge of the edge of the motorway where the, you get all the noise coming through, that vibration, you know, multiply that by a thousand. And that's what you're, the driver's going through when he's in the car, normally on a curb. So, you know, it's there. They, they do, you know, they do feel it and hear it within the car. So it's it's one of those sort of situations. Pirelli, I think they can only make a tire with a certain safety factor. You know, it has to it has to do a certain job, which is to go around a racetrack. But there has to be a certain safety factor on that. The same as every racing car there ever ever have ever known. You know, you build, design all the suspension to withstand the loads that you know, and then you put a safety factor on it. And the problem is that the bigger the safety factor, the heavier the component. So you need to, you know, need to be careful because you're just adding weight here and there. And that's, you know, that's what will happen with Pirelli. They won't be able to fix the problem 100% to, to withstand a set of circumstances, maybe, you know, 1% of a season's problem um, without doing something to them, without adding some weight to it. So does the other 99% suffer because... Um, because you're you're adding weight to it for that one percent that really track limits would fix. So I think you know you can look at things the wrong way. Everything should be bulletproof, but unfortunately it isn't. It's just you have to use it within its its design criteria, and uh, its design criteria is to a certain limit um, plus a safety factor, and that, that it's quite simple. You know that's what everything's built to, to that same specification. The aeroplane you just flew flew back from. Uh, from Quator and is you know it's, it's built to do a certain job plus um, plus a safety factor. Uh, you you got off at A, or you got on at A, and you got off at B. That's what it's all about, making sure that the the, uh, the vehicle you're in is is uh, reliable enough. What did you make in general about the reaction that was put in place? Obviously, Pirelli detected it on Friday night. Little microscopic signs. There was no feedback from teams or drivers or even Pirelli externally that suggested there might be an issue. It wasn't until they cut up some of the tyres as they do on Friday night. They noticed it, notified the FIA, had that track tweak at turn 12 and 13 and that possibility of the mandatory three-stop, which effectively was in place. It was slightly changed for, for Sunday. Do you think that was at least a sensible course of action? It was probably quite extreme, but at least they knew for sure the tyres would last for that long because they'd already run for that long so was it quite a was it quite a reasonable just sort of one hit response not taking in any risks or do you think they overdid it um 
I think that the the change of the moving the white line on the track was a bit of a a non nondescript change because as I say the the big thing is the drivers can't see that. Yeah, they might use the curb a bit less in general, but it's still very very difficult to to see the track limit. Um, they might not just go up the curb as much. I think you know the the end result was they they obviously knew or they, they felt they knew that the t- the tires would do that. 18, 19 laps without any great problem. They also said quite often that it wasn't really a, a structural failure that was going to happen. It might deflate. Um, and that's the last thing you want with those fast corners. But at the end of the day, I think that the, uh, you know, one of those two solutions would have been adequate. I don't think they needed to move the, 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 the white line. I think they could just have, have stipulated the 18 laps maximum, which is effect, as you say, uh, effectively, as you say, is uh, made it a three-stop race. So one of the two would have done, and I think that one of the two would have shown a sort of commitment to the problem, I suppose you might say, that with, with stipulating the amount of laps you could do, as opposed to moving the curb and stipulating the amount of laps you could do, because you were never going to go into the um, the sprint race getting enough information, you know, because the race was only, what, 19 laps long. Even at the best, you know, one lap, does that give you much much safety factor or much confidence? So I think you'd be far better just to have stipulated the, the amount of laps you could do. If they felt it was 18, fine. They could have said 17, you could still do it in three three stops. So, you know, at the end of the day, you could have just done that and forgot about modifying the track, which I think would have been, for me, would have been the better solution. Um, just to get a little bit more detail in what went wrong with the Pirelli tyres, I mean, don't know the exact cause of the failures because Pirelli's still studying that, but we know they were microscopic. And they described it as early indications of the separation in the sidewall between the carcass cords in the construction of the tyre and the topping compound. So it's kind of worth breaking that down a little bit. I guess the topping compound is simple enough. That's the actual rubber tread, isn't it? The bit that's that's attaching you to the track. But obviously for a lot of people, the uh, the construction underneath is, is quite opaque. So it's worth getting a rough idea of what the carcass cords are and what that separation in the sidewall really might have looked like. Well, the, the, the carcass cords, it's, it's quite interesting because obviously these are radial tyres. Um, so you have, you basically, the, the, the cords underneath the, 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 the rubber tread as such in themselves should go around the tyre. A true radial tyre would be that they go around the tyre, you know, like a belt. Um, but they don't quite do that. They go across the tyre to a certain degree. And when you get to sort of 45 degrees, um, or less than 45 degrees, and it becomes a sort of cross-ply tyre where the tyre can bulge in the middle and the, you know, the, with the centrifugal force, whereas a radial tyre doesn't bulge in the middle with a centrifugal force. So theoretically, on a radial tyre, you know, you get a flatter contact patch, high speed and low speed, but that area then has to join the sidewall somehow. So where that bit that goes around the tyre like a belt joins the, the, the cross-ply bit of the tyre, which is coming up from the wire that goes onto the rim, that's the intersection of the, I suppose you might call it the intersection of the carcass, where the, 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 the cords that are going across the tyre meet the cords that are going around the tyre. And that, that happens at, just right at the top corner of the of the tyre. And then on top of that, you get your compound. You know, compounds put onto that carcass like a big rubber tube. Um, the carcass is sucked down a little bit and the, the um, compound is slid across the top of it with a bonding agent. And it's glued in place, like a bit like a you know, a remould, suppose you might call it. Um, and then that that corner really of the tire, where the compound meets the, the carcass, and where the 
the the side wall meets the the belt that's underneath the the compound. That's the area that they're talking about. And it's obviously you know when you're in the middle of the corner, you've got fairly high lateral G, um, plus the fact you're you're smacking it with a sledgehammer. You know I don't know how many times a second, but a you know, hundred times a second or something going over these curbs, and that's the bit we're starting to them. Um, to come apart, you might say. Now, it seemed like it was coming apart between the sidewall cords and the belt cords that's underneath the compound. It's not just the compound starting to peel off, because quite often you will see a, a sort of a crack appearing around the tyre where the compound, um, I suppose, it, it sort of fades out because you have to stop it somewhere. You don't want to stop it just suddenly, blatantly. So where it just fades out a bit, you will see maybe it, it tearing the rubber a little bit there. But it's, that's not really a, a catastrophic failure coming from it. It's just the fact that it's, you know, it's just overloaded the bonding agents. Um, so there's a lot going on at that top corner, that corner of the tire where the where it all joins up basically. And obviously that's the corner of the tire where you're beating it against the curbs. So that's that's where you're going to get that problem. So they'll go back and look at it, and, and I'm sure they'll come up with with something that will mean that they carry the belt that that supports the tread a little bit further or they'll carry the sidewall a little bit further up before the belt starts. You know, there will be a solution to that where where that intensity is on the tyre. They need to look at that and I'm sure they'll come up with a solution. But I, I don't want to see it come up with a solution where you, you know, you have to run 30 PSI or something and, uh, you know, some strange solution. There is a solution in there, but the problem's a small problem at one track. They're quite lucky, actually, because the, the grip level, I suppose you might say, in, in Quatar wasn't as high as it was at some other tracks we've seen. Um, if the grip level had been higher, you know, the corner and speed would have been more, the lateral force would have been more at the same time as you were trying to climb up that curb. So they were they were reasonably lucky that the grip level at the, in Quattro was lower than normal, so it, it didn't put the same lateral forces into the tyre, because that's the same area of tyre that does all the work. So, uh, yeah, lucky and unlucky at the same time, I suppose. Yeah, it was certainly an interesting saga. I think it was reasonably well dealt with and it allowed a proper race to happen, but... Certainly, we will see, I think, some changes with the way the curbs work and the track for next year when, of course, the race will be held fractionally later in the year as well when it's slightly less extreme conditions as well. That's a whole other topic <laughs> in terms of what the drivers went through. But yeah, an interesting weekend. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the, the, the what the drivers went through. That's not the first time by any means. I mean, I, I was responsible, I think, for creating one of the first cool suit systems in a McLaren and I think it was 1977. In, uh, in Rio, because it was so hot, and we, we got some little windscreen washer pipes, sewed them into James Hunt's top for his, uh, his underwear, not his own underwear, but his, his uh, fireproof underwear, and connected that up to a windscreen washer pump and a little tank of water in the back of the car so that he could pump the water through the, the system. It, you know, After a few laps, it got to boiling point. And during that race, there was people passing out, and uh, James himself, you know, I think there's a picture somewhere of me throwing a bucket of water around him um, when he came in for a pit stop. So, you know, nothing's ever new. It's just they need to react to it. And, but there's 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 now technology to do that very very well. There are small freezer units that you could you could put into the cars at add weight. But if everybody has to have the same thing, then and you stipulate that for a certain above a certain ambient temperatures at certain tracks. So there are solutions to all the problems. You just got to get on and do it. I did wonder if they were going to do that with Aston Martin when Alonso suggested put some water on me, some good old school bucket over them. That seemed the most obvious solution, but yeah, probably needs to be a bit more high tech. 
Well, no, there's nothing nothing wrong with a good bucket of water, I'll tell you. It, uh, you know, the problem is it starts boiling in the cockpit as well. It's just, it's not easy to do all that stuff and get rid of it instantly. It's a good fix, but over the longer term, it might not just be quite as good. Yeah, well, we'll certainly hear more talk about that. The FIA has said that they don't want, or they at least want things to be looked at to make sure there is some kind of control over what conditions are, are raced in. And I'm sure we'll hear some technical solutions suggested for that as well. Let's move on to our main topic for the week, which is Andretti Formula Racing. It's been approved by the FIA to join the F1 grid, but to do so it needs a commercial agreement with FOM, and it's fair to say there's an enormous amount of resistance to that. So there's a very long way to go before we can be sure Andretti will be on the grid, and exactly when, and that's not great news for a a team that isn't entirely sure what's going on. But that's all the politics, so we want to set that aside, because on this podcast we're far more interested in the technical challenge so let's talk a little bit about what will be going on there Gary because obviously you were the key technical player in the establishment of Jordan back in 1991 and making that work was a minor miracle but just how big is the technical challenge of creating a brand new F1 team 30 years on when they're vastly bigger? Yeah I'd say it's an enormous task right now from nothing Um, I mean Andretti is a racing team so they've got the main understanding of the structure that goes into a team and the engineering requirement to go racing the problem is with uh, with indycars it is a you know it's a customer car so you just phone up order one and you get your delivery date and you pay your money and you get your car uh then you need from there on in you need all the rest of the stuff to, to actually run the car so they know all about that part of it so that that can be put in place quite quickly it's how they're going to go about designing and building and putting the design group together and the the, the equipment i mean when we were doing it back in the, in the old days um, in 1991, we headed off um, to Phoenix with 27 people. Um, we had three people in the drawing office then, plus all the you know, management and PR and mechanics and you name it. Um, but that was 27 people total. I think it was 28 people total staff. And we left one behind to put the lights on and off. Um, now you're talking, you know, for a, for a reasonably big team, 1,000 people. For a small team, you're talking 500, 600. So... That's not something that you can do like a light switch. Finding those people and getting them all integrated with each other, working together, pulling in the same direction, is no easy task. And these cars are complicated. They are, you know, there's a lot to them now. Before, you know, they were they were they were cars. There was a chassis, a fuel tank, an engine, a gearbox, you know, suspension, etc. But it wasn't too trick by any means. Um, in that, you know, snapshot in time, it was as complicated as that snapshot in time de- defined as the cars are now. But that's just relative to the amount of people you have. And uh, getting the people is a big task for Andretti to put that all together, to get good people. I don't know how they're going to go about building the car because it's you, know, you need to be on it now. Um, you need to be on it very quickly to really, really understand the level you've got to go to to get these cars. Because front to back of the grid now is 2%. So you've got to be quick to be there. It's not You can't... Uh, you can't learn like the old days whenever you were 5 or 6% off the pace and you were still pretty competitive. So time will tell whether they get their entry. And it's an interesting situation because there is an Andretti F1 design team that exists already. Nick Chester, the former Renault technical director, is there overseeing it in, in the same role there. And obviously they've done design studies and design work and they submitted it as part of their dossier to the FIA. I think it was over 600 pages, the dossier they've done. They've done some aero work and, and that kind of thing. 
obviously that's a a slightly odd situation because they don't know 100% where they're going to go ahead with it. I guess it's a little bit similar to what you were doing with Jordan when you were you were working on the design, but you weren't particularly convinced that it would actually all happen for a period of time, but you're still kind of going for it. But what's it going to be like for a team today going through that? Because they still don't really know whether they're all guns blazing. And certainly because there's no commercial agreement in place and Andretti can't be certain, they won't be operating fully like an F1 team at this stage. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, always, it's very difficult. It was it was difficult back then as well. We, as I said, the three of us started to design the car with no knowledge whether it would ever go racing or not. Um, we were also doing Formula Three Thousand at the same time, and two of us were engineering the cars at, at the Formula Three Thousand races. So we were, we, you know, we were enjoying the challenge of trying to put together a package that would be a decent Formula One car um, and we hoped that we'd go racing but as I say it was, it was a long long time it was probably into November before I really realised that we'd, you know, it was going to happen or even Eddie realised before it was going to happen and for Andretti and, and the amount of people you need now just to to tinker all the areas in Formula One it's alright saying well we're going to go and do three days in a wind tunnel and uh, and we'll come back and we'll you know we'll, we'll have a model and we'll We'll build a model and we'll play with it and see what happens. But there's so much more to it, you know. Well, the high, all the hybrid stuff, just the the hydraulics, the integration of all that stuff. It just just it's incredible, you know. Okay, I could see uh, Andretti having a customer engine. Uh, there's talk of of Renault. Um, with that, you can have a customer gearbox and hydraulics and you know lots of customer stuff. You can have customer uprights. You can have, you can do the whole job, a lot of stuff. But what you have to do is integrate all that. And you need to be working with those people very closely now. And that's, that's a very difficult one because you still, you still don't know. You, you know. And with all the best will in the world, Renault or Mercedes or whoever are not going to give you a whole bunch of drawings of their, basically their car for you to start playing with until you sign on the dotted line. So it's a difficult time for Andretti. Um, but it, it's, it's, I don't know why the teams are really fighting it. Because a, a new team wouldn't do any harm. Yes, it will take some of the finances of, that's there, and the teams will probably suffer a little bit because of it. But you know, that's that's looking at the small picture as opposed to the big picture. Because just as quickly, one team could disappear, and you know that would leave eighteen cars in the grid. So you just need to be very careful as to as to not you know not hurt the formula by being a bit silly and not letting a, a team that probably has the standing to come into Formula One. Whether they'll have the, the, the performance when they do get here, that's that's an unknown thing. But they have the standing as a racing team to come in. They have the name. They're big in America. You know, all of that stuff's right for them. So I think they should be given an opportunity. And just to preempt our questions section later on in the podcast, we do have a few Andretti-related questions that I'll throw in in this section because they're relevant. And Dustin from New York says, we've seen teams go about this differently, such as Haas buying almost as many parts as possible to hit the ground running. What would be your preferred approach to entering a new team into Formula One from a technical standpoint? And just to add to that, obviously, there's the listed team components, that the bits you have to make yourself, things like the monocoque, pretty much all the aero parts. Those are probably the two big things, the front impact structures. Another one, but you can pretty much buy the rest here, as Haas does. They take latest spec parts from Ferrari, but yeah, what what would be your approach and why would you take that approach as a new team? I think right now you'd have to take the approach of getting as much as possible because you will never be 
big enough, strong enough, structured well enough to actually do the whole thing yourself. Just just the simple things, you know. If you take the time and research you need to put into, you know, finding the correct wheel bearings, you know, just simple little things. Why do why go through all that work whenever you know somebody else has done all that work? They've put lots and lots of miles on it, so they they know you know how to do it all up. The the, the reliability, the preloads, all the simple things. Those those are sort of things that they're actually not performant as far as there's no sort of degree of performance for your car. All they can do is hurt you reliability wise. So you might as well take that reliability from another team, as long as the other teams want to supply it with you and, and go into partnership. The, the problem is just, if you look at the numbers, you know, if I was to, if, if somebody like Andretti was to, let's say they are doing a deal with Renault, if they were to go to Renault and ask to, to buy their four upright assemblies, which they can do, and they had a, a sort of rough costing, what they think it would take them to do their own, the, the, the parts from Renault are probably going to be twice as much. You know, it's not going to be cheaper for sure by a long shot. So you, you have to make sure that you buy, you buy into the fact that actually what you are buying is reliability as well as everything else and, and, and no, you're reducing the risk level very you know, dramatically by using something that's well, well and truly proven. So you know, that, that would be my route with a new team for sure. And then as time went by, you'd structure yourself to, to take on your, more responsibility yourself. If that is if you're a team that's actively looking at being world champions at some point in time. might take a few years, but it's one of those sort of situations where you have to strengthen it as you go along. But initially, my thing would be get as much as you can from somebody, get into a partnership with a with another manufacturer, just take as much as they as they can, and, and then do the rest yourself. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Now, Andretti wants to be an American team, so it wants to do a lot out of the USA. They've got a design office in the UK at the moment. It's a bit unclear exactly how things will work if they do get the... Uh, I was going to say the green light. If they do get the second green light, they've got uh, they've got one of the two green lights they need already. How difficult do you think it will be able to be to run a team like that? Have a either a genuine Formula One team that's operating out of the USA, or perhaps a team that's split with some some of the ownership stuff in the UK and some of the other things, and rather in the USA, and then some more of it in the UK. I, I imagine that um, you have a little bit of expertise on the old UK <laughs> US split. Yeah, I mean, it's, it makes it tough. Um, we, at, at Stuart and then into Jaguar, I mean, we were based in Milton Keynes. Uh, our wind tunnel was in California, and we had um, Ford in Dearborn doing some bits and pieces of research for us. So keeping that all together was a full-time job. Um, it's one of those sort of situations, I think, where, you, you know, you, you just can't do as good a job as you can if you're underneath one roof and able to to get everybody together and make decisions and, and make sure communication is, is easy and straightforward. Now, you know, people, um, people don't see that problem, but you know, you got to see sometimes you got to go face to face with some people and chat to them about stuff on a daily basis. It's not, you know, you, you can't plan a meeting for in a month's time and we'll have a good idea. It, you know, it's, it's on a daily basis that you're actually sort of dotting the I's and crossing the T's on a huge amount of development. So 
trying to build it across you know, across the pond as such is going to be very, very difficult if you're going to have a, a place in the UK and a place in, uh, in America. And they're both going to be working efficiently. I think that's going to be pretty tough. I would say, you know, put your eggs in one basket. You could do it in America, you could do it in the UK. America is tougher for sure because, you know, the, the, the UK, the, the manpower is here. You know, the, the, the people are working for the teams in the UK. The, the, the spread of sort of technology for Formula One is around, you know, around Silverstone, but it's the, in the UK. So if any team that's abroad, i.e. Ferrari or um, Sauber, were to have a choice, they would probably have a place in the UK to, to sort of help them. Um, but it's, it's a long, long way, but, you know, Maranella to the UK, Ferrari tried it a few times with John Barnard to set it up over here, but it sort of got, Ferrari needs to be Italian, um, but Andretti doesn't need to be American. And uh, I, would, I would put my focus on setting up in the UK initially for sure, and probably having a little bit of backup stuff um, in America, but mainly I'd sort of go commercially in America, really sort of focus on that side of it because it's a big country. And uh, the name in America is very good. So commercially, you know, selling yourself in the States, it just might be the right place to do that. But technically, I would focus on the UK. I think it's worth, for the sake of clarity, that thing about not basing it in the US because the people and the industry is kind of over here. It's worth digging into that a little bit more simply because I think people tend to hear that and they hear, oh, only people from Europe can do it and everyone in America or other parts of the world isn't capable of doing it, which isn't the case but it is worth just clarifying that obviously you're talking about you know the established industry it's like if you start a nascar team in the uk it would be the inverse problem because all of the specialized nascar people are in the us and so you're, you're trying to sort of start it's like starting an industry where that industry doesn't exist it doesn't matter whether you've got plenty of clever people because there's just as many clever people in the usa as in an equivalent population in europe clearly but it's just about what you're kind of trying to create in a bit of a wilderness, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's difficult. You know, as I said, there's there's what eight at the minute. There's eight Formula One teams or seven Formula One teams really based in the UK, um, and you know that's knocking the door of seven thousand people that are involved in it. Plus all the the supply chain that that sorts that that they tap onto. And that's available because that you know because of the the amount of teams that's here. So you put yourself in a position if you come over here where you can tap onto that. You can also tap onto the the five percent of people that work for those teams that you know might be looking for a change, and but they don't want a change where they've got to take the kids out of school and hook them off to America somewhere. You know they want to make a change and and go somewhere with good prospects. So you put yourself in an environment if you're over here where you can tap onto that. That nucleus of of, um, of understanding of Formula One, whereas as you say, you know, in America you're cut off a bit, and and if you were going to build an NASCAR team up, you would definitely go to the States. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to try and do it over here and ship the cars back and forward. So it's one of those sort of situations where you, I think you've got to initially, especially, you've got to buy into the fact that you're joining the. Um, it's a worldwide Formula Formula One, so it's wrong to say European Formula, but the 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 UK base and the European connection is is massive. You know, the, 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 just the the suppliers. You know, they're just. I could put into my Google search here composite manufacturer near me, and I get a, a list of you know 
20 compliments of manufacturers that I could go to and get something made tomorrow. Um, whereas, yeah, Indianapolis, you could do that. And you get three or four probably. But, you know, they wouldn't have the, you know, the F1 expertise, whereas all these guys around here do have it. So you've got to not create problems for yourself. You've got to try and get it done the easiest way possible for that type of solution. Um, because it is going to be tough anyway, just getting it all together getting the people all together, all the equipment together, you know, you're, these teams now have, what, 10 trucks or something, you know, I think Haas the other day just got their new, their pit, uh, their garage sort of layout after, I don't know how many years waiting for it, um, because all that stuff's just, it's just tough to put it all together. Yeah, and it just takes a lot of time, even if you've got the full green light and and all the money to, to piece it together. How difficult do you think it is to be a new team and actually be credible and competitive. As you mentioned, the field is very tight now. Look at the new teams from 2010. They all struggled. The only one that ever scored points was Virgin slash Marussia slash Manor, and they did so once. None of them lasted that long. One of them didn't even make it to the grid at all. And I think we have to set Haas aside because Haas is a team model that was needed for that time, but Andretti's going to have to do more than what Haas does, otherwise it wouldn't have been approved. So just how hard is it to do all of this, put everything together, and then, say, throw a Formula One car on the track that's capable of lapping within two seconds of a Red Bull? Pretty tough. Um, you know, what, the thing we've got to remember, I suppose, is we've got 10 teams out there, and every one of them, whenever they arrived at the first test in whatever it was, the end of February, March this year, you know, that was their best interpretation of a set of regulations that they could put together um, from a, a, a blind standpoint of being stuck in your own workshop for, for X months, you know, and that was a derivative of last year's 2022 car. So it wasn't as though it was a new set of regulations. You know, 2022 was a completely new set of regulations for everybody. But that's what happens every year when you arrive with a new car. You, 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 you generate, you create your, your package from the knowledge you've got of the past. Um, and obviously if you're coming in as a new team and you have no idea really, um, of what the, you know, what what are the basic requirements of the car? It's more and more complicated now. You know, whenever I go, go back to 91, when we were setting up Jordan, you know, I had my philosophy at that point in time. I wanted a car that was easy for the driver, you know, to, to, to drive, a confidence-inspiring car. And I wanted a car that was easy to understand because we were going to go into pre-qualifying. And that's you know, more or less, more or less what we end up with, which is, is something. But nowadays, you know, with that, with the grid, you know, down to two seconds from front to back, you have to go for performance. It has to be everything you can get. So you need to try to have an understanding of what is that performance level. You know, what is the efficiency of the car? What is the downforces? Because, you know, you could put a car in the wind tunnel and have a set of numbers. But are those numbers any good? Where do you get your reference from? So you have to bring other people in that know a little bit about that sort of stuff. So just getting all those people together and working together properly is is the big task because you need that information from the outside world because you haven't got any of your own. Um, just just even, you know, doing suspension loads. Um, if you haven't got any data from the cars going around the tracks, you know, creating, you know, six and a half G brake and four and a half G lateral force, you know, what loads are going through the suspension? Well, how do you how do you get all that information and and you know know what you, what the next step is? To be honest, what do you what do you have to design things to be? So that has to come from people, and you need those good people. Um, 
But design, for, even for a bunch of good people to get together and try to design a car now within two seconds of, of the front of the grid, um, it's, it's not an easy task by any means. How valuable is it having someone like Nick Chester there? Obviously, not only has he been an F1 technical director, his F1 career stretches back certainly to the mid-90s. He was with Arrows early on, then he was with Enstone in its various forms for a very long time. So there's a huge amount of experience there. Does that help you at least find some direction when you've got people like that and there's others there with F1 experience as well? Is that enough to make up for the amount, the sheer amount you've got to do to try and put a credible team together? Yes, it does. Um, you've got to have someone who's got experience um, and then you've got to have the other side of the coin. You've got to bring in some um, people that are not, you know, not, they're not daunted by a challenge, I suppose you might call it. It's a huge amount of work to do to put it all together. But it's one of those sort of situations where you need to put it together in a controlled manner. And I think Nick is one of those guys that's got, he's fairly level-headed about it all. You know, he's not, he's not going to chase down the road trying to create something different for the sake of it he is going to look at a red bull and he is going to say you know that philosophy works don't know why it works but it philosophy works uh, you know let's let's just focus on that and let's just make sure that we dot the i's and cross the t's and and put together a package that you know we we in the end understand because that's what you get from a wind tunnel around you you, you go off and do do a bit of research and you, you try to find out what's doing what in the wind tunnel and then you try and find out the areas that you get most response from you know you can get more, more performance out of and then you exploit those areas as much maximum but there's no you know if you go in blindly and you try to create a new package now yourself that's going to be, be a world beater then you're you're going to end up with uh, with egg in your face you just need to make sure you just for this first car you just get the fundamentals right you head down the road the proven road which you've got to do from a visual point of view. You can't do it from any other other way. You have to just do it from a visual point of view so that you um, you end up not, not making mistakes. And uh, I think Nick's got his feet in the ground well enough to, to make sure that he, he follows that path. So given the FIA's approved them, if you're in charge of the FOM side saying yes or no, it's a yes for you, is it? If I was in charge of the FOM side, it would be a yes for me, but there's going to be somebody have, going to have to put their hand in their pocket, I think. Because, you know, the amount of money that the teams are going to lose, theoretically, by having an 11th team needs to be, needs to come from somewhere. So if, F if the FOM want an 11th team, then I'm afraid FOM are going to have to, you know, put their hand in their pocket and make sure that that uh, excess, that 11th team money is, uh, is, comes from somewhere. It has to come from somewhere because the other teams just won't agree to it. Yeah, and certainly FOM won't be that keen on doing that because they're, trying to make money as well. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how that all plays out. And in the meantime, I do feel quite sorry, actually, for those of the Andretti organisation who are a little bit unclear about what's going on because they will have invested significant money. I don't know how much they've spent, but I'm sure they'll have spent tens of millions. So, yeah, there's going to be some, uh, there's going to be some pushback there if it's a, a no, which is kind of the way it's trending in terms of the commercial side but watch this space as far as that's concerned i'm taking from that ed you know a little bit more than the, than the rest of us i wouldn't go that far just that fom want to say no and i don't think they're afraid of saying no necessarily and then you've got all those other questions because if it's a no because of the principle of having an 11th team well if you're andretti you might say hang on a minute 
this process was opened and there was clearly no chance. So it creates all sorts of interesting question marks. And if you know, if it if that is the case, then you may have some disgruntled people who want to take some legal action. The various other teams that applied, a few of them have made noises that they're not particularly happy about things. So everybody at the moment is unhappy. And frankly, this could all have been avoided if FOM and the FIA had been properly aligned on this in the first place. But that horse has long since bolted. But anyway, we're talking about tech on this, the 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 real measurable, tangible stuff, not all the other the other stuff. So um yeah, I hope they get the chance because I, I think the principle of having 12 teams, the Concord allows it, the regulations allow 24 cars. In fact, the regulations allow 26 cars, but the, but, but the Concord agreement doesn't. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing to work towards. Well, let's move on to our questions section now, because if you're listening to this podcast, you will understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please do send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on anything at all, F1, ancient or modern, something very simple. I know I always say this, but there's no such thing as a simple question when it comes to technology and Formula One technology in particular. There may be something you've always wanted to know the answer to, and I can guarantee see no matter how uh, stupid the question might sound it won't be so send in anything you like you can fire an email into podcast at the race.com that's podcast at the hyphen race.com or you can record a voice note and email that to us and if you do a voice note make sure you let us know who you are so our first question comes from nat who says hi guys i've been into f1 since 2017 and really enjoy learning about the tech side of things despite not having really any car knowledge i especially love the f1 tech show podcast i'm wondering what component gary thinks f1 teams have spent the most amount of time on for the least amount of performance gain both historically through the years and in the current era Thanks so much. That's a good question from that. I've got I've got an answer in my mind. I'm interested to think. To, I'm interested to know if it's the same answer that you come up with, Gary. So let's see what you're uh, you're going to suggest. So you're going to put me first, Ed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> no. I can then just say, well, that was exactly what I thought, and I know exactly what's going on. So it's just me setting myself up to look clever. Well, uh, you know, there, there is massive amount of things around the car, but I, whenever you talk about performance, I, I look at the stopwatch and say that's performance. Um, so, you know, if I go back. Um, 10, 15 years, um, you would be looking at, you know, finding sort of, you know, 1% better performance from a, from a good wind tunnel session. And now that's sort of down to 0.1 of a percent. So it's all relative. You just get smaller returns nowadays from, from finding performance. But I think that the individual biggest thing that teams spend most time on that doesn't actually improve performance is reliability. I think, you know, no good in having a quick car if it doesn't make a checkered flag. Uh, is, but so behind the scenes, you know, the, the digging deep for reliability of everything, every mechanical component through the car, and not only mechanical components, just, you know, even the aerodynamic components being stiff enough, strong enough, bracketed well enough, fastening on, you know, holding on well enough, all that stuff, that's, that's non-performance stuff. It's just reliability stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a good half of any Formula One team technically is is involved in that because it's uh, as i say no point in having a quick car and it it, uh, it failing every time you go out there so yeah you put a lot of effort into that for zero performance what's yours ed well i was actually i i yeah that's quite a good quite a good answer from you obviously you've come up with a clever one than me. i was actually thinking just it's just something like the gearbox really yeah. certainly in terms of the actual gear shift mechanisms 
obviously gearbox casing can be significant because their suspension geometry but i just i always remember when um seamless shift gearboxes came in and like force india were like the last one to do it i think this was in 2008 probably and they invested a load in it and all they did was get parity in the end so although they did yeah, gain yeah. performance it didn't really do much for them but it, it's a it's a big part it it's a fair it's a fairly expensive thing to do obviously aston martin have been suggesting there should be a spec gearbox maybe because it's not really a performance part now of course we should say aston martin is a team that currently takes customer gearboxes and that is going to have to make its own in a few years so of course it's lobbying for that there's some yeah. self-interest yeah, yeah. there yeah. as well but it, it it's quite a big thing that is you know it performs and it needs to perform but it's it's something that costs quite a bit but in terms of its primary purpose to shift gears, it's not going to give you an advantage, let's put it that way. Yeah, there's certain things in the car that you have to be as good as everybody else with. I mean, gearbox I classify as, as that. But on the other hand, uh, a gearbox is one of those things that can let you down. I think it'll, it'll make you better than any other team. With the regulations the way they are now, um, it will make you better than any other team. Um, but it will definitely let you down very easily as will you know many other things on the cars so you need to make sure that you you know you if you're looking at true performance i look at true performance as something you can go away from go away at one week develop and come back next week and you find yourself a tenth of a second now um that that to me is, is lap time performance you're not going to get that out of the gearbox but for sure if the gear change isn't right or if it uh, you know it doesn't work correctly then you're going to lose time but you're also going to potentially be unreliable. So I've, I, I suppose I classify the gearbox as part of my reliability package as like wheel bearings and steering rack and so many other things. You know, what do you classify the, the DRS actuator as? You know, it doesn't actually help your performance. It needs to open and close. If it doesn't open and close, that's a reliability problem. So, you know, it's one of those things that's it's hard to define what's performance and what's reliability. But um, I look at nearly all mechanical stuff as being in uh, reliability you know how you've got your suspension geometry for example set out as you know we know red bull are different from others um how you got your suspension geometry laid out that's part of your performance package but it's not something you change from week to week so a lot of time goes into reliability on all the mechanical components on the car but performance really does come from aerodynamic aerodynamic surfaces no, so we had a similar sort of answer. I was just a slightly uh, a slightly less broad vision version of, of your answer. I'll, I'll take that one as a, as a success. The next question comes from Dan Kay, who says, the upgrades that Red Bull developed earlier this season were described as theoretically faster. And since then, we've all seen the struggles that this has brought out for Perez. As a technical director, would you push for a theoretically faster car if you were fairly certain your current drive lineup couldn't handle it? And how would you balance the need for current results, future developments, or possible driver? changes there is a bonus question there but we'll we'll maybe tack that on to the end so the main question yeah what would your approach be with that well all you can do is to develop your car theoretically you know you need to if you've got a good understanding of what you're doing with the car um the thing is you need to give the driver performance that he can use and i keep classifying that as peaky downforce or sort of fairly benign downforce now you know, the, the driver can't use the peaks because, you know, the peaks never hit you at the right time. You know, it's so critical to a few millimetres of ride height here and there. You know, different speeds, different lateral forces, different steering lock, all of that stuff. So if you can, if you find some peaky downforce, which I think 
you know, when, when Mercedes first introduced the car for 2022, they were screaming about the levels of downforce they were getting out of the car. But that was probably at one, you know, one specific fixed ride height, which they couldn't run the car out on the track. So you need to get an overall car, a car that's overall um, confidence-inspiring for the driver. Now, the problem is really that Red Bull have got the two, two opposites in their drivers with Max. You know, they've obviously followed Max for years as far as what he wants to make the car go faster. So their theoretical developments will suit what Max wants. And, and Perez could get left behind with it. You know, as a driver, you need to keep up with the times. And if Max is driving the car differently, you need to find out why you can't drive the car differently. It's one of those sort of situations where, you know, the, it's down to you to, to, to adapt to suit if you're going to be a top-line driver. You can't just get a car that you want all the time. And um, Max, you know, whether you like him or you don't like him, if you put something on the car that theoretically makes the car go faster, he goes faster with it because he buys into what, what it does and drives the car to suit. So I would, with the understanding that Red Bull have of a car, um, theoretically, they under, they know which direction to keep on going on. And I, to, I, I call it with them as sort of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. They don't have to sort of go for a completely different concept or a completely different aerodynamic philosophy. They're just optimizing what they've got and just taking it that step further all the time. And obviously, if that's a situation that, driving characteristics that doesn't suit Perez, then it could get further away from him, but it could get further into Max's hands. So, you know, they've got to protect themselves against the other teams. They can't keep looking within their own team and say, okay, we're, we're okay because uh, let's just take it easy a little bit here and help, help, uh, help Perez to settle in and, and get the car to suit him a bit more because there's others coming up there, you know. They, the McLaren aren't, aren't that far away now. They've, they've done a fantastic job this year. They've got two drivers there you know, buying into it and willing to drive the car very, very well. So um, Red Bull can't stand still right at the minute. They've got to keep moving forward and they can't just relax and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll spend the rest of this season just getting Sergio happy with the car because suddenly somebody else will be there knocking on the door and you don't want that to happen. And the bonus question from Dan Kay is, is there a Gary Anderson design that you felt was capable of much more than the drivers managed to extract? This is understandable if you don't mention specific cars and drivers, but no, I want to hear specific cars and drivers. Who are all the drivers that let you down and you did brilliant work and they just couldn't deliver on it? No, I'm very happy with all the drivers we had. Um, you know, they did a good job. We were, we were naive about a lot of stuff through our, our uh, Formula One career, our time. And, you know, in underestimating Formula One, I'd been involved in it for a long time before I designed the first uh, Jordan, but I hadn't been involved in designing the cars. I'd done, you know, lots of work. I'd, you know, I've created new underfloor tunnels for ground effect cars, you know, different sort of bits and pieces for many, many years in my time in Formula One. Um, so, you know, that was the time whenever you made stuff, you, you, you know, you took on a bit of a project and made stuff. But I suppose, you know, going back to being involved in the design of the car, I think the, the 97 Jordan deserved more than it got, would be my thing. And I wouldn't blame either driver. Um, I would blame the fact that the two drivers didn't really, they weren't lovey-dovey. You know, they weren't, uh, they weren't best mates. Uh, they, they were definitely opposed to each other. They were definitely fighting each other. And we're seeing that happening now a little bit. I'm not saying that Hamilton and Russell are going to fight, but they are you know, fighting for the same bit of track sometimes. 
And when you get two drivers fighting for the same bit of track, you know, a few can sit in there unless the team's strong enough. Um, so we lost out a bit in, in 97, I suppose, at the car. You know, we should have won a race. We, we should have had a few more podiums, but we didn't. But um, I wouldn't criticise any of the drivers that we had. All of them put their heart into what we were trying to do. All of them tried to give us the best input they could. I suppose, the, the, you know, the cars that I really sort of liked, I suppose, focused on most was the 91 Jordan, the 94 Jordan and the 97 Jordan. All the others in between had reasons to, you know, not, not be what we wanted, but that happened. But those three years were the years that I say we had a good car. Maybe we could have got a little bit better out of them. Um, but, you know, whatever we you thinking, what we went through, like 91 with Bertram getting locked up the first year, um, Schumacher coming for one race, and then we had a selection of drivers to the end of the season. 94, Eddie getting banned. Um, you know, lots of stuff happened. And then in 97, we had the same drivers from the beginning to the end, but they were at war with each other, especially after Argentina, after they did hit each other from they were you know, both heading for a podium, I suppose you might call it. Um, but those things, you know, those things happen. You can't, you can't go back in time. But 97 would be my year. Yeah, good choice there. The Argentinian Grand Prix is one that leaps out uh, in my mind where the two of them collided. But, uh, but anyway, the final question comes from JG Popponet, who says, I'm not sure where this question would fit better, if it's for the race podcast or the F1 tech show. Just love them both. Well, you're in the tech show. But yes, it could have worked for both. The question is, Considering the recent problems with Logan Sargent, who keeps crashing and costing quite a lot of money to the team, can Williams decide to run only one car till the end of the season? Is that something that would be allowed? There have been instances of teams deciding not to run a car during a single race, Stroll in Singapore being the most recent example, but with the cost cap and to avoid affecting next year's budget, could they decide just to pull the car out for the rest of the season? Well, actually, you know, since in, uh, in uh, Quattar is the, least, the, the latest um, sudden uh, fact he couldn't race because of a fuel system problem. So uh, that's classified as force majeure, I think they call it. Um, and that you can get away with that as long as there's very little notice. Um, you know, if you're, all your trucks on the way to the race meeting um, break down or something, you could sort of say it's a bit of a bit of a bad scene there. Uh, so you end up with a situation where it's just, is it planned or is it force majeure? If you're going to stop for the rest of the season with one driver then no you couldn't do that there you have entered two cars and you contract to race two cars both both with the FIA and and the Concord agreement so you know you can get away with the odd race here and there by as I say force majeure but as a plan no you'd need to run two cars um, and if you know obviously the races are far enough away now for to find another driver there's probably each team probably has a list of drivers to be honest that are all out there with the checkbook and the pen ready to go. You know, they'll bring you some money. So there will be somebody there that will jump into that seat if, if necessary. You know, it's, it's, Logan Sargent's had a hard time. You know, it's, it, it just seems to be if he didn't have any, you know, if he didn't have, have luck at all, he'd be better off because he's, uh, all his luck's been bad luck. You know, every time it sort of turns around, seems something happens. Now that you can put down to the driver for sure, but at the end of the day, Maybe you just should let should let them try to get a good weekend in and just see how it all unfolds at the end of the day because sometimes that's all you need one one decent result. I'm not score not talking big points here, but one decent result where it goes clean from a Friday morning to a Sunday night. You know, you get you get in and it's clean, and um, then then you get sort of your 
you get your motivation back because you can be trying so hard not to make a mistake that you just keep making mistakes. So uh, let's give him a chance and see. I hope he, I hope he survives to the end of the season. I'm not sure he's got a place in Formula 1 for next year. That's a different deal altogether. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, Williams maybe see something in him that we don't. But let's wait and see how he finishes the season. Yeah, there's there's pace in there and there's ability in there. They just want it to come together. They're very keen for him to do it. But, yeah, they do need a little bit more from him before they can commit to him for next year. So that's the nature of Formula 1, isn't it? You've got to prove yourself every single year well thanks very much for those questions as i said earlier if you've got a question send it to podcasts at the race.com that's podcasts at the hyphen race.com and we'll do our best to answer as many as possible well thanks very much gary for all of your insights on another episode of the race f1 tech show we're going to be back in a couple of weeks so do send your questions in i'm sure there'll be plenty of storylines technically for us to delve into so stay with us for more from gary You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.